Strategy. Design. Marketing. UX. Digital. Development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. Here we are. Varun, my friend, it is finally sunny outside in this tropical paradise of Boston, Massachusetts that we live in. <laughs> well, only for a day or so, Terry. This weekend looks like, again, rain, which is going to be disaster for our camping or hiking trip, which we have been planning for like three weeks, but has been washed away because of rain. Sounds so, like you need to get some wellies and a couple of raincoats and maybe some soap. <laughs> well, with, with two kids, it's just hard. Um, you know, a uh, little one, they've never been to rainy camping yet. So we'll, we need to just keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, who, who do we have today? Today's guest I'm looking forward to chatting with because he's got a really, I've got three fun facts on him as an intro. We're going to change the intro up a little bit. He has 11 approved patents in the trucking and traffic management industry, which I'm sure we will dive into a little bit later. He raises chickens, and he also is the co-founder of the Digital Services Coalition. It's a nonprofit organization consisting of a select few companies driven to accelerate government's digital transformation, if that's not a little teaser on kind of the niche that our guest focuses on. He's the chief delivery officer of Pluribus Digital, Ben Morris. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Well, thank you for having me. A um, couple of fun facts there, but let's dive into our myth-busting question. What sort of bogus strategy, misconception, myth do you want to set the record straight on? I think the the general thing is that for government and technology, whatever people's impression of is that, it's probably wrong. And usually those come in one of two directions. It's like one end of the spectrum or the other. So either you're picturing something like out of the movies of like, oh, the government must have some super advanced software uh, like I was watching with my, it was my kid's choice, but I was watching one of the Fast and Furious movies and they had like these, this like government um, investigation team. And they had this software that was super slick that pulled up instant information on everybody. On the tablets like, that are see-through and all of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, right. Like this, you know, beautiful interface um, mm -hmm. with up-to-date information, everything there at your fingertips Within and so seconds. on. And that's definitely wrong. Um, or people picture some, you know, green screen mainframes, uh, you know, or other really backwards software. And that's also, you know, with a little asterisk, mostly wrong. Um, but really the, uh, you know, the, the main myth to bust is that, you know, modern day technologists really do have a, a really meaningful contribution to make to build some really impactful products in the, in and around the government sector. So I want to, this is, you guys specialize in government, which is a really interesting niche. And so it just like, let's start there. Now that you've introduced it, we've teased it. Why government? Like, how did you get into us? Give us a little bit of like, paint this picture for us a smidge. Yeah, you know, for me, it was a um, honestly a little bit accidental. I mean, I think there were some things in my background. Both of my parents had worked for government, pretty much state government um, for the most part. And uh, in their history, but 
that wasn't necessarily a, you know, a direction that I had set for myself. Um, but as I went through my initial career as a, a web developer, uh, went to grad school, got an MBA, um, and then it just sort of happened that the job that I got after that was a consulting job, but it was in the public sector. And I kind of figured maybe I'd eventually move out of that back in towards the private sector. Um, and I just never really ended up moving out of that industry. And, and it really kind of grew on me. And, um, and, and that's sort of where I've stuck. So it was a kind of gradual, um, somewhat accidental path. It's interesting how many people fall into the same, not fall, maybe isn't the right, just, well, I'll use fall, you know, it, that first job we get out of school that like leads and dictates kind of what industry you end up in for so long. It's not like it was purposely thought, oh, I would like to go work for a B2C shoe company or something like that. You know, you, you kind of are like, I need a job. I need a job. I'll take this one. Oh, now I'm in this industry for a long period of time and you become an expert and you know it, and it's become stickier and stickier. So, mm -hmm. um, what are, you know, technology with government in particular, what, give us, is it, how does that work? How does business work? And I know we're usually talking about agencies, but as an agency, I'm assuming there's a lot of different types of uh, approvals or like, what's that process I mean, look like? Do you have to go through an RFE process? Yeah, or, I mean, there question. must be some tenders. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, starting with that kind of getting the work, uh, the the process to win work or, or get a get a contract is probably one of the most different things uh, compared to working in a commercial environment. And, and there might be similar things with some like large companies or you know others that might have a, a well-defined process. But the government process is not just like company policy or practice. It is its laws that drive a lot of this because they're understandably guarding against various forms of like fraud or waste or abuse. And for what very, you know, many historical reasons, it's kind of grown up that way. So it's very official. Uh, the government will put out an RFP or request for proposal. They have to put out evaluation criteria that's very transparent. They have to run a fair process to have a, a pretty open competitive process. They tend to consider price quite a bit. So often there's, um, it, it can be challenging to do work at the right kind of rates where you can support um, the, the right sort of talent and, and so on. So you really have to, uh, there's a lot of education to just navigate that process. Uh, and, and a lot of that's before you get the work. Uh, the other thing that's perhaps different than what people might be used to is the timeframes where Sometimes things can happen pretty quickly. And when I say quickly, I'm talking, you know, two, three months. And sometimes it is uh, timeframes you might not believe, you know, years for, for something to happen or come to fruition in a worst case. But, but often you're talking several months going from that RFP process to a decision of, are we going to be able to, to do that work? I have a quick question about that because, you know, let's say you win a win an RFP. You're now a client of, you know, Alpha Company or Alpha Department within the government. If they have another project that comes up, do they have to put it to market again, or can they come direct to you guys as an approved vendor? 
within, you know, their ecosystem already? Mm -hmm. Like, how does that work? That's a good question. And it gets to one of the things that is sort of the art of how government can be successful mm -hmm. um, in, in, you know, having a digital capability. So the answer is kind of yes, no, and in between, and it, okay. it depends on how they structure it. So certainly in most contracts, they can expand the scope a bit. You know, we needed, uh, we needed to build a, a product to help process healthcare claims for like CMS Center for Medicaid Medicare services um, and then and then they have some additional related needs usually they can just kind of use that uh, an existing contract and there are some more sophisticated structures out there to have either you'll officially have optional line items on a contract so we've done that before where the government could just decide to add more work to what we had or sometimes they'll do these contract vehicles and mm -hmm. uh, acronyms are just part of what we do but idiq is one or or bpas um, these are contract vehicles where they kind of they'll award to a, a narrowed down pool say like hey, here's three companies or five or ten that are good at doing this particular thing and now we can just issue task orders or do a, a, a more streamlined competition among just that group to do these new incremental pieces of work. Um, and that's all to get around that or work how, within how does, that speed of contracting. How does the engagement model look like? Meaning, do you guys collaborate? Like they have tech team in the government as well. So when you, when they hire agencies like yourself, do they have teams that collaborate together they work in agile or like print development or is there a special or, or do they follow this waterfall model like what does the process look like in the government and how collaborative is the process in general yeah and let me kind of take the two parts there um, one being kind of the staffing or the team makeup and, and the other being the process so the the team makeup is too often, honestly, it's pretty light on the government side in terms of technical capability, or, or when I say technical, I mean technologists, be it you know um, product designers, product managers, software engineers, or or the like. Um, I, in our mind, even though it's kind of the business we do, is we get paid to provide that capacity. Um, you know, we would love to see more on the government side. Um, they tend to have good, you know contract managers, contract oversight, and project managers tends to be the roles that are commonly there. And many of our customers, they do have, in addition, um, some skilled technologists, but not always. Um, in some environments, they really don't have that in-house on the government side. And it's it's a little bit of a different relationship where we are not kind of delivering a um, uh, uh, product or, or it's not it's not so much a, a transaction of hey we we need to we need to do this campaign we need to um get this uh, accelerate this product launch getting out the door what have you it's more of a uh, a long-term capacity that we're providing it's it's not quite staff augmentation it's more kind of capability augmentation to help the government be able to build and maintain the digital products that are at the core of delivering on their their mission so it's a little bit of a, a long answer on kind of the team makeup, but it is an important uh, line of questioning. The 
process um, is it's pretty standard to be operating in a, a agile methodology. You have some typically something like a, a scrum flavor of agile. That's the, the mainstream of government right now. Now, now occasionally there are some environments where uh, there's a lot of waterfall tendencies wrapped into that, but the government has been uh, across the board, has really leaned in that direction hard in the last five, 10 years. And, and that's generally pretty, um, pretty mature. Um, some government agencies are incredibly mature and advanced in that regard of process, and um, some still have a, a little ways to go. When I have a couple of questions, but the, I, like when scoping, it's just so interesting because it's such a different, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we've talked to so many agencies that focus on different ni niches. I don't know if it's a niche or niche, however you say it, segments, targeted segments. How's that? Um, Perfect. It's this one is not one we've covered in the podcast. You know, we've talked about healthcare, we've talked about like all kinds of manufacturing, IT, all that stuff. It's what's so interesting and different about this one is the not only you know getting the work process, but once you're in in and you're doing the work, and what does it look like? Like, what does the team look like? You talked a little bit about agile. Like, what access do you get? Do you need to get security clearance? I mean, you're building technical software. Like, how does the QA work? I know that's mm -hmm. like 850 questions at once, but maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit about kind of the lifetime of that, like the the process or the project. You know, for you know, thinking about it in terms of of potential agencies that might be interested in targeting that or mm -hmm. um, and getting into that. Give some nuggets that you have in terms of like what makes that work well for you guys. Sure. Um, I think, yeah, one quick thing, and, and we could dive into it more if you want, is that for agencies that are interested in the space, it's definitely a, a compelling space in terms of impact. And and so on. I, I think, honestly, one of the biggest things that we see with when we're working with teaming partners or other companies that come from more of the commercial space, um, it is a slightly different business model. So you kind of have to be ready to wrap your head around that and that rates and utilization and so on are just, it's it's a uh, a slightly different equation. So that's one of the, one of the stumbling blocks in addition to just navigating the whole RFP process. Um, but when it comes to actually doing the work, um, there typically are a, a, some kind of a clearance process. And I'm not talking about like polygraphs and you know, being spy uh, movie stuff. The, yeah, the spy movie stuff. Um, that I mean, there is uh, the whole intel space. There's lots of interesting work there. So sometimes it is that, like the top secret clearance kind of work. We don't do that, but there typically is a what they call a public trust clearance, kind of a background check thing. Um, and it it makes sense because you're getting access to systems or potentially data that is very sensitive, like you know all the records for a bunch of people who are in a benefit program or that sort of thing. Of course. Um, so there is that, that can take a long time. Um, in some environments, we've been able to work in ways that uh, don't, don't create a barrier there. So for example, we uh, support the Department of Veterans Affairs. So that's providing benefits to veterans. It is Obviously, there's a lot of really sensitive information there, but to 
do a lot of the development, you don't need access to like people's records. Um, you just need access to the code and and so yeah, on. What and makes in up fact, a record? You, you can go to uh, GitHub and you can see a lot of uh, VA products are out there. The source code's out there. Um, so we have teams there where folks have been able to really engage and, and work on the products without uh, uh, going through that fully going through the clearance process yet because they can contribute to that. But it's basically an open source code base. Um, so sometimes there's workarounds, but yes, it, it can take time to get people fully onboarded. Um, I think the other thing that's really different is the, you know, the, it's the problem you're solving is often just slightly, um, you have to reframe it slightly because you're not just building a product, but it's really what are the policies and other decisions that surround it. So sometimes the government can move a little bit slower, but it's um, sometimes it's not for great reasons, um, but often it's for very legitimate reasons because you're not just talking about let's improve this process or something else. You're actually talking about, uh, hey, maybe we need to consider a, a policy change or work with a wider stakeholder group to really get that bigger thing done and you're kind of solving a, a bigger problem. Does that become an awkward conversation sometimes where you're like, yeah, we can do the thing you asked us to do, but there's some laws that we need to discuss, you know, as a citizen yeah. of the United States. <laughs> it is. And it can be, it can be hard because not everyone's comfortable mm -hmm. um, raising it up to that level. Uh, there's actually, there's a wonderful book that was out just recently released a, a few weeks ago called Recoding America. Um, and it's by Jennifer Polka, but that does a great job of explaining um, that 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 sort of awkward conversation or, or that engaging at that level is really where uh, where we need to be as a as a mm. government ecosystem, um, and the where it really goes off the rails. Uh, or if you hear about big government project failures, it's probably because you know you're. Uh, the the policies are maybe a little too convoluted, and then you're trying to build a solution that actually meets all the requirements of a somewhat convoluted policy. And if if you could only do some small things to simplify the policy, then you could make everything just work better, cost less, be simpler for people to use, et cetera. Why is that not surprising? Oh. <laughs> so. In, in the light of all of that, does it limit your uh, abilities to hire freely, like, you Good know, question. hiring full time or hiring contractors? And, you know, I mean, you are at, I don't know, 70 or 80 people now, mm -hmm. um, and you work primarily with the government or you have non-government projects as well. Like, how do you structure mm -hmm. the team size and the overall setup of your own agency? Yeah, um, we we are, uh, you know, a hundred percent government work essentially. So, um, and we it does tend to restrict uh, who we can hire, and that um, we, in some cases, for some customers, it is mandated that uh, to to get the clearance they have to be a U.S. citizen. In some cases, we can do you know non-citizens, permanent residents, or or other statuses. Uh, in general, everyone has to be in the United States. So even if you're, you know, a United States citizen, but you live in, I don't know, London, 
um, then typically those folks aren't eligible to support work just because of the customer's requirements. So there are some of those constraints that do make it, um, you know, less, uh, it, uh, you know, reduce some options that others might have working in a commercial environment. We can't, um, we can't engage in, you know, an offshore subcontractor um, to, you know, in, in, in most cases. So yeah, there's, uh, there are certainly a number of constraints that impact, um, you know, who we can hire. Um, quick question before we jump to the next topic. How, how does it, well, how, how hard do the government negotiate on the pricing? Like, oh, good how question. does that work? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, like negotiation in the sense of like sitting across a table happens once in a great while, but not often. Um, usually what happens is there's definitely pressure on price but it's more of a competitive pressure. So what I mean by that is that if, if they open up an, a request for proposal RFPs and people submit, and uh, if your price is you know 30% higher than someone else, then they will probably award to the someone else and say, you know, give you a debrief, um, which is part of their process and say your, oh, that's nice. your price was, you know, uh, you scored, well on this or on that, but then your price was really high. So, you know, you get a feel for these likely competitive price ranges. And that's usually it. It's like, it's not even that they have to negotiate. It's that we have to come in with a fairly competitive price um, out of the gate. And, and we steer away from work where it's like, you know, really super hyper competitive. Um, and there's there's even a, a contracting mechanism or, or a competition uh, evaluation mechanism uh, that we, there, there's like this dreaded acronym of LPTA, which is low price, technically acceptable, where they will just basically say like anyone who passes a minimum bar, as far as the technical quality of their solution, um, will take the lowest price one out of the bids. And that's, that's something that is, it's actually, there's been guidance, um, uh, through the people that make the rules for government contracting, um, that actually basically say, don't do that for the type of work we do, but we still come across it once in a while. You, as you work with folks and get to know the various people evaluating, you must get some insights into like, okay, this person tends to go with this kind of thing. And this person tends to go with this. So there's, you know, there's knowledge is power and a lot of winning these, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. as you it's interesting. It's an interesting, before we change topics too, I know in our prep call, I just want to mention, because this was just one of those eye-opening moments, you mentioned that one of the unique things about working with the government in particular is you can't focus on one support technology. So like you have to build device, you have to build software that supports not only iPhone, but Android and whatever else is mm -hmm. out there. So the whole, it's, I believe my note literally says it's a bit of a different animal, which I'm going to use here too. So it, that was such an interesting as you're approaching these projects, it's a different way of thinking because we're so used to outside of that space, people want really like, here's the thing that it needs to do to support this other thing in these cases versus like you have to think a lot more universally. Is mm -hmm. it? Yeah, certainly anything that's um, facing the wider public, um, you you have to both from a, you know, serving them, kind of, if you think about it of serving the market, you have to 
um, have a, a serve a wide range of people, um, but also just from an obligation and mission perspective, right? Like if, if you're in a building yeah. a commercial product for the most part, you can kind of make some trade-off decisions to say, well, if people are on, you know, the the trailing uh, tail, long tail uh, laggards on on technology, like then, your iPhone eight, you know, some yeah, right, like or or them. yeah, or or, <laughs> or worse, um, yeah, you can potentially say like, well, worse. we'll just kind of give up that part of the market. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the programs that we support is login.gov and that's sort of the the mechanism for people to log in to gain access to services. So you can't just kind of say like, oh well let's let's not worry about that, you know, the one percent over in this corner. Um, you have to find some way to to service those people um, because otherwise they can't apply for a job with the government. They can't get benefits. Yeah. They can't, you know do what their government's supposed to to do for them. Um, so that it's definitely um, different. And and one of the reasons why you'll see, so you, know, you might come across that every once in a while, there's a news story about, oh, you know, TSA built this app and it costs like this much money and, and people are kind of amazed by that. Now, sometimes there is waste or, or it's maybe, maybe somebody um, spent too much money doing it, but often it is, a lot of this other stuff you have to think about that is the legitimate side of why it would um, take more yeah. is that you do have to um, serve a, a wider range of devices, browsers, et cetera. Um, and, and you also have to do other analysis. There's that like, you have, if you're building a new system that's taking in data, you have to write up a, a privacy impact assessment mm -hmm. to see how's this affecting the, you know, the use of people's data. So, so some of that extra weight behind it or delay is for legitimate purposes and, yeah. and sometimes it's not i don't know if you guys ever follow the tsa on instagram as a side note they have yes. the best instagram account yeah uh, hands down i don't i know ben's nodding for those yeah Varun, if you haven't checked it out it's literally the best it's hysterical whoever runs that should just run all of instagram it's so funny like probably hire some marketing agency to do that sometimes i don't know i mean it's is it's, it's it's a government run organization. I don't, you know, I don't know how they would do that. It's just hysterical. The whole thing, the comments, the pictures, like what they post. I'm like, whoa. Anyways. All right. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the coalition um, yep. because there's, there was a purpose and a unique reason for, for starting that. I know we talked, it's uh, I'm looking for my description, digital, the co-founder of the digital services coalition, the nonprofit organization consisting of a select few companies driven to accelerate government's digital transformation. Why? What was the motivation behind starting that? If you can, you know, paint that picture. Sure. <clears throat> a little bit. Yeah, certainly. Or your mission behind it. I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, I think part of the background of it is that, you know, some of the bad impression that people might have about government technology is there's, um, there's a lot of, you know, you can pick your sort of stereotype or, or what have you, but there's the idea of like beltway bandits, like companies that are just trying to like get contracts and um, and make money, um, w whether or not they deliver. And there's, or, or just sort of less um, less mature companies, you know, that are kind of what you call butts and seats government contractors mm -hmm. that are, um, you know, not necessarily trying to swindle the government, but just um, are, are not delivering at the level of maturity that that they need, um, and and there's definitely a a need out there to 
shake things up a bit and provide a just a higher caliber of service that is more in line with modern product development processes. Uh, and on the government side, in-house, in the government, there's been a, a, a lot of movement in the last years, uh, I mean, really in the last uh, decade, of building up more of that culture on the government side. So there's the U.S. Digital Service is probably the one of the wider ranging examples across government that was set up initially during the Obama administration, but has been part of all the subsequent um, administrations as kind of a permanent fixture of uh, there. They're bringing people in for tours of duty six months to a couple of years, often from, you know, call it Silicon Valley type companies, um, you know, for, literally from Google or other such places, but also um, from, but people with similar skill sets. And that's been a pretty successful way to inject more into government. Um, and there's 18F, which is kind of a essentially a digital agency that it lives inside the government. So it's government employees uh, doing engagements for other government agencies. Um, but then on the contractor side, which is percentage-wise the, the biggest part of capacity for delivering digital products for government, um, there wasn't really a, a central focus. There's sort of a, a loose community of companies. And so the Digital Services Coalition was really kind of formalizing that and saying, how can we better you know, make, make those companies a better part of the ecosystem, better engage with the related counterparts in government? Because you, know, you might picture government as like, there's this one thing, there's a, the president who controls it all. Um, but really it's a, it's a federation of dozens and dozens and dozens of government agencies that each have their own, um, you know, their own organization, um, their own budgets, and and so on. So it's all kind of very distributed, and uh, and so it's really a way to um, to really advocate for that better way of doing things across the board and um, and create a space for that. Nice. I'm going to pivot again, if that's okay, Varun. I want to talk about your patents <laughs> because it's it's such a deviation and maybe it's not, you know, 11 patents in the trucking industry. Tell us a little bit about trucking and traffic management industry. Government adjacent, and, where did those kind of manifest from? Did that come first or the government projects come first? Good like question. how did um, you? Uh, it was a little bit of, uh, um, I guess, uh, first and in between. So the uh, the truly the trucking ones were from grad school. So when I was getting my MBA, there was a cross-functional or a cross-university uh, course where they had um, business school students, design students, engineering students that worked together on projects. Um, and so it was a, and then for the semester, there'd be a essentially a corporate sponsor we'd be working on live products or, or you know or, or product development for that customer essentially um, and so the customer we had was international truck and so they basically brought a truck cab to campus and parked it um, took the wheels off and stuff so nobody could drive it around but if you picture those um, if you see trucks on the freeway and they have the cab space behind the driver's seat um, that's where there's like a sleeping cabin and that kind of thing. 
And then you'll see some of them have this um, aerodynamic um, uh, arch that is uh, kind of okay. goes up to, to meet the height of the trailer. And in some trucks, that is an empty shell. And in some, that's interior space. And where it's interior space, it was underutilized. And so that was a, a project where we looked at how to better utilize that space. So there, there's a few patents that came out of that. Little to do with government. Um, but then later in my career, um, when I was working in the public sector side of IBM, then um, I, I was working quite a bit with kind of intelligent transportation and traffic, which is more of that local government for the most part sort of space. Um, and looking at uh, uh, the area of traffic management as in road traffic, not like internet traffic and, and transit Actual and traffic. so on. <laughs> yes, uh, the physical traffic. And, uh, and so, yeah, then there are a number of things there that were yeah, more related to kind of public sector work. So it's like the things that people do before they get into agency ownership. It's just, it's just fun to see mm -hmm. and hear. That's like one of the best things about this podcast and who we get to chat with is like, there was, you know, an earlier guest worked on race cars and we all, we went, what? Like we need to, how did you get into that? You know? So it's the mm -hmm. stories that come out of it are so interesting, but, um, I, I'm going to pivot a third time, unless Varun, you have a follow-up question there. I want to talk a little bit about AI, because I think I'd love to hear your perspective, Ben, especially what you're doing, what you're seeing, especially in your niche, you know, not only as an agency owner and what you've experienced there, but also as a citizen of the United States. I'm curious, what's the government doing with it <laughs> outside of the spy models? Right. So. Yeah, right. I can't tell you, uh, or I, I, I can't tell you because I don't know, not because I'm faking that I don't know. Joking, um, but uh, yeah, I can't tell you all the, the ways that the CIA uses or whoever, um, pick your three-letter agency. How are you using that. it? Yeah, but, you guys um, not but a little there, minority report situation over there? <laughs> right, there, there's a lot of excitement in government. Um, I, you, know, I, you know, some noise, but certainly a lot of signal about using AI in various government use cases. And so that we see that as a as a need, something that our customers are asking for and something that we've had a chance to apply some. So, uh, you know, one example is we support the Citizenship and Immigration Service, which is mm -hmm. people applying for benefits. So they'll, they'll apply for citizenship or a different work status or a, a number of other things. And as part of that, they'll get their fingerprints read um, to go on file when they have an initial appointment. And if someone's fingerprints are not captured correctly, then it's uh, kind of costly all around where uh, it's inconvenient for the person because then they'll get a notice say like, oh, by the way, we didn't capture those correctly. You have to come back in and kind of schedule another appointment and then they have to make another trip and it's a hassle. Um, it's, and then it drives more costs for the government and it delays everything for everybody. Um, and so uh, one of the areas we looked at there was how, you know, what can we do at that moment of capture to figure out if that's likely to come back as a bad read to try to catch them right there so that they, they can say like, oh, you know, this one looks like it won't go through, won't likely go through. So oh, let's go ahead and do another capture to um, try to avoid you having to come in again. So that's, um, that's one example of trying to do some of that predictive modeling. Um, and then what we haven't had a chance to apply yet, but certainly is, you know, a lot of the buzz just in the last month or two is the, you know, chat GPT, large language model type of use cases. Um, and one of the things that actually some of our customers have 
just tried like with ChatGPT is um, where you have like a, a set of regulations. So, you know, reading through and parsing through regulations, if you're like a business owner or, a, um, or, or someone that those apply to can be kind of, you know, a bit tough to um, puzzle through it all. Um, but if you answer the question in your own language or ask the question in your own language through a ChatGPT type tool, um, sometimes since obviously that's like those things are public information and crawlable by the those uh, tools trained on on the internet or related things, um, sometimes they can give pretty good answers. And so obviously it's, you know, the government doesn't just want to say like, oh, well, just ask some tool because you, you have to worry about the how precise that guidance is coming back and you don't want to be kind mm -hmm. of rubber stamping something that was oh it, it misinterpreted or hallucinated some fact about about that but um, that kind of thing of uh, helping people more easily get information about um, you know pages of process or policy um, is something that has a lot of I think interest in the industry in addition to just um, other other sorts of use cases and then uh um, and then there's also the defensive side of it, of like, how might it be used or misused in interactions with the government? So if someone is filling out an application for benefits, and there's some kind of a written description portion, um, then there you know, may be issues of, uh, if, if there may be ways to, to use ChatGPT that would be um, you know, not ideal, right? Like it, that could be a tool for fraud or for, for other things, so. Or even summary uh, of some of that legalese, you know, can you distill mm -hmm. this down in an executive summary or provide me the high bullets and, you know, it gives you a place to start. It's mm -hmm. interesting. Sorry, yeah. everyone, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was curious to know, how do you put the checks or give the freedom in the team to use ChatGPT so that it does not interfere with the government work? Because I assume people everybody in the technology wants to stay up to date and have like you want to try and learn how AI can be leveraged. But um, as we hear that it does come with privacy problems, like, you know, you don't want to share too much information that the models now can use your content, your inputs for their own learning and then share with others. So how do you keep a check on that? Like, how do you have some company policies or any checks in place that, you know, makes them make the team feel, you know, well, allow them to use it, but to an extent that it does not um, do more damage than help. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of those questions around tools or, or what uh, tools or other limitations, usually at, at the company level, we typically don't do much um, because the the constraints are usually on the on the customer yeah. side. So if you're if you're working in the customer environment, then they have their own, um, in many cases, they have a process for adopting or approving tools or technologies, et cetera. Um, so we typically don't layer anything on top of that. Um, you know, we'll make some things available, but uh, so yeah, we, we definitely do um, uh, make, you know, those things are available to kind of experiment with, especially outside of um, the project and then inside of a project or inside of a customer environment, it's kind of up to the customer uh, decision yeah. process about that, about any restrictions. Um, but one one nice thing about being out, outside the government as a collaborator with them is that when it comes to 
prototyping or experimenting with with something like that where our government counterparts might not be able to as easily you know like try something out um, with some of these emerging tools that they might not have approval to use we often have the flexibilities to do it now obviously not like using the government data or or government systems but like we could go do a proof of concept kind of outside of yeah. there and, and sometimes that's for things as simple as uh less controversial things like just yeah. um you know toying with something about a, a prototyping a solution with some aws services or, or whatever um and, but but certainly it fits for this kind basic of business need type stuff regardless of the niche yeah yeah makes sense um so i have one one last question on my end so um how so we we ask this to every agency owner about how do you keep yourself up to date and connect with other owners in a similar space now yours is a very specific very niche um do you have a tribe a network where you hang out and talk about and discuss the best practices in the government space for the agencies is there any such thing or what do you do um yeah that actually that one that was a I don't know that it was the explicit purpose of forming the digital service coalition but it was, certainly was a meaningful part of it or a helpful part of it was just providing that kind of network um honestly like when it was when we were first getting it moving it was mostly kind of a, a slack group and and we had met um a couple times but it was like a uh yeah, it was almost like a support group like we'd have some zoom calls or have some meetings or have just slack interaction and it was like uh you know a, a chance to just connect with other people and either for big questions like thinking about you know how you're going to structure your management model for your company or the trials and tribulations <laughs> of ownership or more mundane things like oh we're looking at a new recruiting tool like which which ones do people do people use greenhouse or lever or other you know that that sort of thing um and and that's been incredibly helpful and and actually our company has also um founded another uh slightly different purpose group that also serves a similar purpose which is um uh, the digital um WASB alliance so WASB is women owned small business so i i think i put in a warning somewhere about acronyms in the space. Um, you did at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, but that's a, a group kind of advocating for more, um, more procurement and inclusion of, of women-owned small businesses in the space. Um, but there too, I think a big part of that is that people really value uh, kind of coming together and, um, and just engaging as, as owners and that kind of some like practical professional support group and sometimes almost like emotional support group. Yeah. Safe space to vent. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation, Ben. You've provided a lot of um, interesting insights also about, you know, working with the government, but it, both sides. I think Varun and I were looking forward to the chat from both those perspectives. We've got one last question. Um, what are you, you know, we've talked about where you came from, what you do and how you do it. What's exciting you about the future? You know, outside of, I mean, you can say AI, you know, we've talked about that a right. little bit, but we'd love to, you know, particularly in your world, what are you, what are you looking forward to, you know, outside yeah, of um, tablets and, you know, spyware that will be embedded into our bodies at some point or. Right. 
Okay, joke. Um, yeah, no, I, I think what's interesting about um, about government now for a variety of reasons and um, is that the, you know, we're, we're at a, at something of a, a nexus point, I think, of like government has been in, in different fits and starts kind of becoming more digital or the sort of like hackneyed like consulting phrases, digital transformation. But um, I think that is happening in a real way in government, but there's a whole lot to do. So that's really that that open space now is how how can we not just have technology in government or automate some things, but how can we make things much more natively digital and therefore like scalable and fast um, and and cheaper to operate uh, and and more reliable and everything else. Uh, and there's a, a lot of opportunity there. And I talked about that, like, you know, engaging at the policy level um, and and really just um, the, the movement to have technologists not be kind of at like the end of the chain of like, oh, we figured out what we need to happen and we figured out the process and the data we need to capture. So now go implement it to, um, you know, how can we use those, those design practices, the um, kind of product management practices, et cetera, uh, and think about how we can transform the way services are delivered and really bring, um, have the have technologists or people with that kind of awareness have a seat at the table at like all phases of that process and that's where the real opportunity and the excitement is is really taking it all up a level to really uh transform it great well i don't think i said it earlier but i really love your tagline so i'm gonna say it now for your company you know because our government employees and citizens deserved a better software it's like you it's there's no mincing and extra words in that so um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> On many well, thanks levels. for having me. Well, and thanks for coming. So folks listening and watching where you can find Ben is on the LinkedIn, both his personal um, and then your company as well. And it's pluribusdigital.com is your website. So that's it, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, tell somebody about the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies.build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.